You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Prayer gives power to our activity. Prayer gives power to our activity. I want you to think about that for a minute. See, you and I, we can go and do stuff based on our degree or our heritage or our abilities, and that's great. It, it will start and end with our abilities, which oftentimes are very limited. But prayer gives power to our activity, which means that when our activity is preceded by prayer, God's going to enter the picture. He's going to do more than you and I could do in our own motivation, our own power, our own skills or tests or abilities. He's going to do greater things. And we want to prayer to precede activity as a church. We don't want to run ahead and do activity and say, God, please bless our activity. We want to come before God and go, God, where is your activity going to happen where are you already at work? Where are you already moving? And we want to get ourselves on board with that. And as we seek the Lord, we're saying, God, where are you moving? Where? And we want to generate resources and push people and ministries in those directions where we see the hand of God moving. And I don't know about your life or mine, but I could use a lot more energy in my life. Anybody in here use a lot more energy here? All right, well, these people, all right. CJ, you going to catch this for me? All right, two hands, bro. I want you to knock your mom out, or I don't, want, I don't want to knock your mom out with a bad throw. I would love to throw it to somebody back there. I, I just, uh, yeah, Andrew, I think you could catch it. I'm not sure that I wouldn't end up knocking out people who are with you here today, so uh, I just don't trust it that far, but it would be fun to try it sometime. Hey, you know, this internet, when we have a culture that's addicted to energy, all that energy comes with a warning label, and, and you need to be careful, uh, CJ, if you are going to drink that, because that stuff, it will make you shake. Like, it's called AMP, and it's like, you know, I don't, I don't even know. I don't do energy drinks, but people are drinking, and you're going to have this ultimate energy rush, and then you're going to have this crash. And what happens for us is energy, like energy drinks, has a warning label. Any fake or manufactured energy has a warning label. How many of you have ever said, yes, I will give energy to that activity. I will sign up for that. I will do that. And then later on, you're like really... You're like, I started that thing, but I have no energy for it now. I wish I never started in the first place, right? That's manufactured energy, right? Versus when you give and you serve and you volunteer with people you love and you come away and you're like, that, I'm energized because of how I poured out. There's a big difference between manufactured energy and being energized really on the inside in our inner person. And maybe you've made commitments before that you later regretted, but the truth is all sorts of manufactured energy, whether it's the evil one, the antichrist, whether it is an energy drink, whether it is generated power comes with a warning label. Well, a lot of those energy substances like energy drinks will make a shake. And the church in Thessalonica was shaken. They had received this false rumor that they bought into that the day of the Lord had already come and that the, the antichrist was at hand and they had somehow missed being gathered together with the Lord, and they were shaken. They were afraid. And so Paul and his team writes back to this church to give them strength and comfort in their time of need. And given the persecution they, they were facing, they thought, maybe this is it. Maybe it's the end time. Maybe we are at the end of our rope. And so if you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Paul says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you to be first fruits. I lost my place. First fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. 
He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his, eternal gra- by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Well, Paul is writing to them, and they're shaken, and they're worried, and he's given them some reassurances earlier in this chapter that we looked at last week. But now he's coming along, and he's saying, listen, I've got some things to be thankful for. In fact, I'm thankful for you, and I'm thankful for what God's doing in and among you. And so if you're taking notes today, we want to ask, what was Paul thankful for? What can you and I be thankful for? Number one, they were the first fruits. And that might mean nothing to some of you. Like, what is that? Remember, this is an agricultural society. And in many ways, they understood the nature of you plant, you receive a harvest, and the first thing you take from that harvest is called the first fruits. In the Old Testament times, what they would do is they would take the first fruits and they would bring an offering of them to the Lord. So not waiting till like the middle of the harvest or the very last of the harvest, they would take the very first fruits and they would bring it before the priest and they would give it as an offering and it was called a wave offering not because they were near an ocean although you know in in uh, Israel is near the Mediterranean Sea and we as Californians would think that but because they would actually wave the offering in front of the priest before they gave it to us so it was called a wave offering where we're giving like hey lord here's our firsts and we want to give that to you now god is passionate about the firsts God is always passionate about the first. When Israel took the land, God said the first city that you attack, Jericho, everything in that city must be dedicated to me because God is always first. Now, let me just say that might sound egotistical to some, but if you're God, it's right for the first to be dedicated to the Lord. So God is all about the first. He wants the first of our time. He wants the first of our week. That's why we gather here Sunday morning, the first day of the week. We give him the first time of our week to the Lord. We're honoring him with the first. We give him the first of our income in the tithe. We say, God, here's not the leftovers. Here's not the tip. But God, we're going to give you a tithe. God, we give you the first. We're going to give you the first of my heart, the first of my life. God is all about the firsts. He doesn't want to be second. He doesn't want to be leftovers in our lives. He, rightly so, deserves to be first. And he's all about it. And he's saying, listen, Paul is saying, I, we brought this good news to you. And you owned it. And you received it. And God put his Holy Spirit in you as a deposit that you're going to get eternal life. And he put that Holy Spirit in you. And you are like the first fruit of the harvest. The investment that happened there, you're like the first. You're like this offering that the Jewish recipients would understand. James also uses that same term, first fruits, in James 1.18 when he's writing to Jewish believers in the region. That they were like the first fruits, that God is the farmer, that God is the one who's at work at a plan that's been going on for ages. Paul brings some of the message, but it's about God and it's God's message, his gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, and they believed it. They were the first fruits. Well, as a result, they were saved and they were sanctified. Saved and sanctified. Well, saved is obvious. They believe the good news and they get saved, but sanctified means you're set apart for holiness. That means you were all condemned in your sin. All deserve hell. 
And sometimes people feel like, well, I don't know if I, I don't really, I don't really know if I deserve hell. But when we come face to face with the depravity of our sin, the wickedness of our heart, the callousness of our caring, we realize that with good reason, before a holy and righteous and just God, we would all stand condemned. But we receive the message of Jesus, and we believe it. This recipients in Thessalonica did the same, and they were saved, and they were now set apart, not to be among the condemned, but to be brought out among those who were set apart to have relationship with God, to be a people for his very own, to be holy. And that's done by the Spirit's work. That God has done the work. He's worked it through the ages, but God's Holy Spirit is the one who draws us, and we respond to that drawing, and we are saved. And now he begins a good work in us as a deposit, and he begins to work in our lives until a day of completion. It is by his work. Paul is also thankful that they had faith, which is belief in the truth of God's word. Faith is not just faith for faith's sake. I think in our culture, saying you have faith is like saying, I just, I'm just reaching over for some pixie dust. I'm like throwing it out there, like I got faith, so I'm just going to get through it. You know, I'm not sure to do this, but as long as you have faith, or maybe, you know, if, if all this religious stuff, you know, maybe someday I'll be okay if I want to get into heaven because I just have some sort of pixie dust. It's not what faith is. He's saying faith is trust. It's the assurance. It's like what you do when you sat down in your chair today. You had faith that that chair you're sitting in would hold you. And with good reason. It was well-constructed, it was built, it's comfortable, don't fall asleep, I'll throw more things at you. But you had faith that that chair would hold you. You acted upon it. Faith is to be acted upon. Faith is active. And what they drew in is that they believed in the truth of God's word. They didn't just believe some sort of belief for belief's sake. Well, God chose us. And we got to think for a minute, what does that mean? It really means God did all the work. God did all the work saying, I want you to be drawn out, to be set apart. I'm going to do all the work on the cross. I'm going to pay for your sin, but I'm going to do everything and walk right up to you, and you just, as I'm drawing you, you just take that last step toward me. But it's God's work. He chose us. And what does that mean? We're going to give you five things that that means as we unpack them here a little bit today out of this passage. Number one, he loved us. While we were opposed to him, Romans 5, 8, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is the initiator. He's the one doing the work of a farmer, saying, you're like hardened soil, and I'm going to come and do all the work. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to prepare the work. I'm going to give the accomplishment of the work. I'm going to plant a seed in there, and I'm going to cause the growth, and I'm going to nurture it, and I'm going to carry that on until there's a harvest. That's God's job as a farmer. Sometimes we think it's always our job. Like, well, God gave me the seed. Now I have to be the one to always make it grow. No, we participate with the work God's already doing in us. But it's his spirit that's working within us. It's his spirit that causes us to grow. But we have to realize we started out opposed to him. Secondly, he chose us before the beginning of time to be saved. Listen to these verses, Ephesians 1, chapter 3 and 4, Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So when did he choose you? 
Think about that for a minute. Before the creation of the world. See, some of us think that, that God's response is dying on the cross was like an oh-no experience to uh, the reality of sin entering the world. That he was like, oh, no, now what do I do? No, listen, before sin entered the world, before the creation of the world, God chose you. He chose you. He loves you that much. While we were still enemies, before the creation of the world, he chose us. 2 Timothy 1.9, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And again, Titus, who is one of the founders of this church, writes in his book, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of, or Paul's writing to Titus, further the faith of God's elect into their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised, when? Before the beginning of time. So before the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, before the creation of the world, God chose you. Think about that for a minute. Who am I? Who, who are you? That God would love you enough to choose you before the beginning of time. He loves you when you were opposed to him. He chose us before the beginning of time to be saved. God's the initiator. It wasn't just simply a plan, you know, damage control plan because sin somehow entered the world. So like, for example, this week, a lot of our students have gone off to Hume Lake. Not all. We've got some great students right here with us today. But we've got a bunch who are going up there, and there's students from all over, you know, churches all over the nation. Uh, over the course of the summer, we'll go up to Hume Lake, and there will be some students who hear the news of Jesus Christ, and they will be walking in a way that's opposed to Jesus Christ. And they will, in their life, be directionally walking away from him, but they will hear the news. God will plant that seed in them. They will respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. They will turn and choose Jesus. And they will receive his Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit will begin a work in them that he will carry on to the day of completion or until the Lord's return. That's what's going to happen. Why? Because he loves us. Before the beginning of time, he chose some to be saved. Why? Because God chose those students to be saved. Number three, he's not just simply selective. His offer is extended to all. We could have rejected his choice. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 1, 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. He chose us. And we could have rejected him. But he chose us for salvation. And you might say, well, Dave, that's kind of obvious. You know, that he chose us, chose us to be saved because we were all condemned in our sins. That's right. But he chose you for salvation, that he loves you, that he wants you, and that it was by his work, not just your own work. Here's an interesting thought. You didn't choose to be saved. He chose you. And you responded to it by his grace. Who are you or me that we would have an, the grace, a gift from God, enough to respond to the good news that Jesus died for our sin and wants relationship to be restored between us and God. That's good news. And who are we that we would be worthy of that? That's the whole point. We're not. We're worthy only because he loved us before the beginning of time. He didn't just choose us for salvation. He chose us for something more. He chose us for holiness. 
He chose us for holiness. That's that idea of being sanctified, to be set apart. That he's saying, I set you apart to not live like everybody else lives, to not do what everybody else does, to not go with all the energy of the world and the momentum of the world, to not live in 50 shades of any color, but to live in 50 shades of white and to live in clean living in a unclean world. He said, I'm setting you apart. I'm asking you to be different. I want you in every shape and way to be different because I called you to be holy. It's my holiness which is upon you. And so he's called us to be holy. So what is, how does that work? Well, my responsibility is to be his person in practice. If I think I want to be my own person, then I'm going to follow whatever my own self wants to follow. We talked about last week that you might be more afraid of missing out on the experiences of life and what everybody else is doing. More fearful of that than missing out on the return of the Lord and being in right relationship with him. He's calling us to be holy, so my responsibility is to be his person in practice. So I'm going to start to live from who he called me to be, not who I used to be. How often, though, do you feel like, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I really am who I used to be? Because you were making two steps forward and then all of a sudden you sinned and you felt like you just went three steps backwards, right? You say, maybe, maybe the reality, and we have an accuser who wants to remind you, maybe the reality is that I am who I used to be and this isn't really legit. And God says, no, I love you. You simply respond, participate with who I call you to be. See, living in that duality is frustrating. See, if I'm living outside of my identity that God gives me, then I'm, I've got a mixed-up identity. And it's very frustrating. And God says, no, no, you come. You live out of identity, who I say you are, not who the accuser says you are, not who you used to be, but who I say you are. And it's interesting, the person who actually does that, you think, you know, the person who actually follows God, who walks in holiness, they should be proud, they should be arrogant, they should be judgmental. No, the real person who lives out of holiness, they're humbly dependent on God. They're saying, Lord, as I get closer to you and your holiness, I just see the condition and the depravity of my own sin. And so I'm even more dependent on you because I'm just aware of the weakness of me. So his identity has to become our identity, who he says we are. We come humbly. We say, God, I am desperate for you. I will walk with you. I want to quickly be the person who runs to obeying you. And God, it's got to be you who finishes what you started. Because if it's left up to me, I'm a goner, right? God, you've got to finish what you started in me, your Holy Spirit, his work, that farmer illustration that he plants he causes the growth. People will water, people will scatter the seed, but God's the one who causes the growth. He's at work in you. Let me ask you this, though. What about your sin shakes you? See, some of you are here today, you're in church, because this week, the depravity of your own sin has shaken you. Like you didn't think you could go there. Or you thought you maybe were beyond your hurt or your habit or your hang-up. And then all of a sudden this week, you went back there and you're here in church today because you realize, oh my goodness, I've been sobered up. The depravity of my own sin has shaken me. There's a need revealed in me for God's Holy Spirit to work and change what I cannot. 
See, persecution for these people revealed that they had a need on the inside, that persecution was revealing that they were reacting out of the flesh. And isn't that what you and I do? We get tempted, we might want to react out of the flesh. We get persecuted, we want to lash back out out of the flesh. And what Paul is saying is it doesn't have to be that way. Paul says that he's learned the secret of contentment. And what does he mean by that? He says, it's your choice. He says, I choose to not let my sin define me. What do we do? We look at our sin as evidence, right? Here's evidence that defines who I must be. Paul says, I don't, I don't, do, I don't let my sin define me. I also don't let my successes define me. Because if I let my sin define me, I'm deflated all the time. If I let my successes define me, then I'm puffed up, which means I'm in danger of being deflated easily by one thing. So he's saying, when I, do, when I do something wrong or I do something good, it doesn't affect my confidence anymore. That's countercultural to how you and I live in the world we live in, right? Because if we do good, our confidence should increase. If we do poorly, we do bad, our confidence should decrease. And Paul is saying, listen, I've learned the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That I don't let my sins define me. I let who God says I am define me. And I also don't let the good things, the performance, all those things that you try to tell people when you meet them that are like your you know, resume of, of greatness. And the problem with that is you could have this great resume of greatness and it only takes one bad piece of paper on top to make it to the point where you can't see all the good anymore, right? You're only focused on that one criticism. You're only focused on that one failure. You're only focused on that one review that wasn't up to your liking. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've learned not to puff myself up, and I've learned not to live deflated. But if I boast, I boast about Jesus Christ and what he's doing in me, that the work he started in me, he's going to carry it on to completion. Why? Because we start to connect our external circumstances. We go, oh my goodness, I'm being persecuted. It must be that I'm maybe doing something wrong. Or I take the external circumstances of life, just how the difficult life is and the difficulties of it, and I begin to equate them to my performance. And that's not how God wants us to live. That we don't take the good we've done, we don't take the bad we've done, and let it affect our confidence anymore. Right? know all too many Christians who under the accusers, our enemies' accusation, you're living deflated and you've stopped and you're paralyzed and you're not pursuing the Lord. You're not giving him your whole heart. You're not loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've also met too many people who get arrogant and they begin to think I'm good enough. I'm self-sufficient. I don't really need to ask How's the condition of my personal relationship with God? When's the last time I sat down with my Bible in his word and I began to talk to him and pray to him? How's my pursuit of him like a lover would pursue someone that they love? Those things benefit you when you and I pursue him. But we're not going to let the good or the bad affect our confidence. We're going to live confidently that when I fail, God's greater. That when I do well, that God is still near. And I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket. So Paul commands us to do two things. Number one, stand firm. Now this is the opposite of being shaken, right? 
If, when an earthquake happens, you grab onto stuff, you run for a doorway, you like crouch down on the ground, you, you try to stabilize, right? Because things are shaking. And when life shakes you, Paul is saying, listen, life is shaking, but you stand firm. You stand firm. It's the opposite of being shaken. And right now, there's an age when we need to stand firm because it looks like all the momentum, all the power, all the energy seems to be with a false delusion in our world that leads people to pursue sin and the love of most is growing cold. We don't pursue real love. We pursue selfishness. And the depravity of our sin is rocking our planet. Our culture's changing. Our neighborhoods are changing. Our world is changing. You look around, all the events that are going on in our world, and our planet is being shaken, and yet we don't look at all the momentum that be, seems to be drawn in the popularity. We look at the Lord and we say, I will not be shaken. I'm going to stand firm. It's the opposite of being shaken. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 Paul says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. In Philippians 1.27, he says this, whatever happens, there's a lot of things happening, right? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in, one, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. What happens? We start to get shaken? No, we stand firm. Why? Because he chose us. He loves us. He cares for us. And so what we do in the middle of persecution is we stand firm for the furthering of the gospel. We're active as we stand firm. It's not always easy. This week I met with a member of our church named Pete, and he has given me permission to share our discussion with you, but he has multiple diseases right now. And uh, there's been some trouble going on in a lot of different areas. And, and he just, like that psalm that Jordan read, was like, how long, oh Lord? How long is this going to happen? God, have you, at times he's felt like, God, have you abandoned me? I mean, I have all these health issues and they can't get my medications, you know, exactly right. Because they're like, well, for a normal person, we would give you these medications. But because you have these five diseases, that wouldn't work well with these things. It would have adverse effects. And so it's almost like rocket science for them to even figure out what to give them. And it's brutal. And his vision's been failing him recently. And he basically just said, you know, there was times I just go, God, how long? I just feel like my body, my own molecules are persecuting me. I said, yeah, I stand firm. I stand firm. He's having conversations with people he would never meet if he was healthy. Doctors, people in waiting rooms, He's having a chance to share the good news of Jesus alongside the reality of his struggle with his health. He doesn't have guarantees about tomorrow. He feels like everything's been taken from him. But he's laying it down. He's saying, may every costly thing I lose right now just be evidence of he who follows. Like I lose one more thing, maybe his vision. I lay it down. As one who follows you, I will stand firm in the face of persecution. What do we stand firm on? We stand firm by staying true to God's truth, 
not just subjective feeling, but to God's truth. Paul says, he says these teachings that have been handed down to you, some of your uh, Bibles may say traditions. Really in the Greek, it means the handed down teachings. He's saying that the things that we've taken, that we've shown you, that we've learned, these letters I've written to you that are scripture, we have the Old Testament as well. You and I now, we have the entire Bible, but he's saying, listen, stay true to these teachings. Don't be easily alarmed by rumor. Colossians 2.8, he says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There's a whole deception going on in our culture and our world, but see to it that you stand true to the word of God, that you stand on those teachings that have been handed to you, and guess what? It's been handed to you, and we judge what we do by it. Let me tell you right now, the scriptures time and again tell us to be of sober mind, to be controlled by God's Holy Spirit, to not empty our minds and empty ourselves, but to be focused on the Lord and be totally controlled by Him. And I know the state fair is in town, and I know that they like to hypnotize people at the state fair, but I've been around the block enough to know that hypnotism is one of the doors to spiritual oppression in people's lives. Don't do it. You're ignorant. You think it's just a joke or it's funny or whatever. It's not. We're to be of sober judgment in control of ourselves. We don't give control of our life and everything over to alcohol. We don't give control of our lives over to, we'd say, self-controlled. We don't give it over to hypnotism. We don't give it over to being manipulated by a false doctrine in our world. We stand firm. We hold to the teachings. And God gives us some promises. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17, let's read it again. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. A couple promises. One, he loves us. He loves me. Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us. That's awesome. God loves you. Some of us play the performance game. We look at our bad stuff that we've done, and we go, it's like that daisy thing, right? We got the pedal. We go, oh, he loves me, loves me not. Loves me, good stuff. Loves me, not bad stuff. Loves me, loves not. And we don't get it. We don't get grace until we understand that with Christ, every petal on that flower says, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. That's when we get it. Before the beginning of time, he chose you. And loves you. Second, he gives eternal encouragement. Eternal, not temporary stuff like, hey, buddy, good job. And they pat you on the back and it feels good for like five minutes and then you're back to realities of being persecuted or the trials in your life. God gives us an eternal encouragement. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle the word courage in the word encouragement. Because literally the word there means that you have good courage in the face of distress or persecution. He gives me just enough strength and assurance to endure just in time. God gives us the strength to go on, the courage to go on. Courage is what we need. He gives us a good hope. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. There are times you and I are not eager to do what is good, but God's work in us prepares us to be eager to do what is good to do what is right. We are a people that are his. Listen, Pastor Wayne Cordero says this, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Let me say it again. Success is not final. See, because if it is, we think we've arrived, right? Hey, success, I've arrived. I can stop. Failure is not fatal because, see, if we think it is, then we think we're, we've come to an end. We've ended. We're done. And we've stopped. In both scenarios, we've stopped. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. So we neither have arrived nor are we finished. But God says, begin again. You're here today. You're fully aware of the depravity of your sin. Begin again. Not in a performance sense, but participate with what he's already doing in us to live out of our identity. He gives us real energy and real strength, power for living. Uh, this week I had the chance to catch up with an old roommate of mine. Uh, we were in seminary my first year, his last year of our three-year Master of Divinity degree. And we were roommates together. And I have not seen Greg for 22 years. And so as we got together for lunch, we got together at like 11.30. I don't think we were done until like almost 4. And we were just catching up. And it was amazing just to hear his life story. And, just to, and as we shared with each other just over the years that, you know what? God has done so much that our degree never prepared us for. God has done so much that our abilities certainly don't qualify for. God has walked us through seasons of dark nights of the soul. When we needed his strength and we were persecuted and able to have the courage to continue because that's what counts. And we saw how prayer time and again did far more than our degree or our preparation or our history or our heritage ever could. God accomplished so much. I was telling him as we walked through the building just about, and maybe some of you are newer here and you don't know this story, but when we bought the building, the previous tenant at the end of their tenancy hired a company to come in here and strip the building of anything that had worth they were going to take the floor in here, all the countertops out there, and they were going to take the wooden floor from upstairs, and we had to get the lawyers involved just to even restrain and hold those things. But they basically stripped the building. They took all the window blinds, they took the trash cans, they took the stools that were around the countertop out front that were bolted to the floor, they sawed them off on the bolts under the stools and popped them out and took those. They took all the pot up. They took everything that normally in a house you'd leave if it was bolted down or attached to a wall. They took all the mirrors off every wall which is great because it saved us a lot of money on Windex. But the point is they never should have taken that stuff. Bank of America ended up paying us money because of the damage that was done to the building and things that were taken on the way out. But we just felt like the, the building had been plundered. That's what we felt like. And so we began to pray, God, would you just, I, I don't even know, but would you just somehow get some of that stuff back? It just seems so wrong. Well, they put it on big rigs, and they drove away, and we didn't know where. One day, I'm going to lunch, 
and there's some empty commercial real estate that now is filled as a dental office and a little gym right over uh, off of Harbor Point, so like a block away, okay, like a little bit behind Starbucks. They put on a big rig, they moved over there, they unloaded it, put it all in there. And the door was open, there's a little U-Haul out front, and I, as I'm driving by, I look and I see exercise equipment, and I'm like, wait a minute. So I flip around, I come back in, and I pull up to the guys who are you know, loading this U-Haul, and I'm like, hey, hey guys, are you selling exercise equipment? And they're like, no, 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 this is Gold Gym, we got another one up in Natomas, and we're just at our side, we go, oh, what else do you got in there? They go, oh, we got like window blinds, we got like stools, I mean, they basically just said you know, all the stuff that had really been plundered. And so, it was a block away, so... I started going over and just laying my hands on the building and praying, God, restore to us the plunder that had been taken. And then I took a couple staff people over and we laid hands on the building and we were praying, God, restore to us. I took my kids first and then a couple staff people. And then our whole staff, after a staff meeting, we went over there. We laid hands on the building and we prayed, God, you restore to us the plunder that had been taken. And about two months after we started praying, we received a phone call from a brand new owner we've never met who bought the stuff on 20 cents on the dollar. And he said, hey, I own gyms in the Midwest. I want all the exercise equipment. Are you guys interested in the rest? So we basically were like, yes. And so we worked out some deal with them. We helped them load some stuff. They made some good deals on some large items. The rest they donated to us, stuff that we, would take us thousands of dollars to redo. All the blinds that you see up in the upper classrooms and some of the children's areas to the front entrance, they're all matched to the windows. We didn't have to redo those because God restored to us the plunder that we're saying. That's good news. You can clap for that. That's awesome. Prayer gives energy to our activity. See, we, we know how to call up a place and say, hey, can you make custom blinds for us? But God is greater. He can do more than you can ask or imagine. And he loves you. The last thing that he does, he gives us real energy, not manufactured energy, not energy based on people's motivation. The last thing he does is his energy produces right actions and great words. Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you. Don't curse them, bless them. Bless them with your words. When they give you a curse, you give them a blessing. How hard would that be for the person who has written you off, the person who persecutes you? For you not just to just endure it, God, give me strength to endure, but God, give me strength to bless them. Give me strength to pray for them because prayer doesn't, may not change them, but prayer changes me. And how I respond to them. Under persecution, his energy will give you right actions and great words. So what do we have to thank God for? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just so you're looking at your own life, not distracted by anybody around you. I just want you to think for a minute. If you're a longtime believer, you say, Dave, I, I've been saved. I've been saved for maybe years in my life. I want you to ask yourself the question. Where have you begun to believe the lies of the evil one who wants to accuse you? And also ask the Lord, where has the depravity of my sin begun to define me again? Would you just be honest with him for a minute about that? If you're already a believer in Jesus, you know him, you're praying to him right now. God, where have I made agreements? Not with my identity, but I've stopped participating with you. I haven't been investing in my relationship with you, my personal one-on-one, -on -one, nobody else around. Time with you. And maybe in this room you're realizing 
you don't know Jesus Christ. You've never received his gift, his offer of eternal life. You've never had him come and give you his Holy Spirit and renew you from the inside out. And today is the day that you want to say yes to Jesus. And if that's you, I want you just to pray a prayer right where you're seated. It's basically an introduction. You are saying, God, you've done all the work, but I'm inviting you to come and do finish that work in me. Do it in me. I want to receive that gift of your Holy Spirit. I want eternal life. And if that's you and today you're ready to say yes to Jesus, then I want you to pray right where you're seated. He hears you just silently. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Free me from condemnation. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and that God raised you from the dead. And as God, you are my advocate, my defender. So Jesus, I receive the gift of your Holy Spirit Today, I'm saying yes to you.